I'm Jeff Browning. I'm Justin Higgins. And I am John Gunnison. Over the past 12 months, we've hosted more than 250 events with more than a million live listeners. We've had cabinet secretaries, members of Congress, ambassadors. We've had some of the biggest names in TV, print, and radio journalism. And hundreds of our audience members have asked these guests questions directly, have brought whatever they want to raise to the forefront. We've had a lot of interesting moments where people who disagree with each other engaged in those disagreements, but still kept it respectful. And if you're listening to this, then you know that we've released about 100 podcasts where we've edited down our favorite conversations with musical breaks. I think this podcast is unique because in these events, we were not the main event. The focus was not really on us. Our goal was to bring the top minds and experts in the world straight to you with no filter, people who really know what they're talking about, leaving space for nuance and respectful disagreement. Normally, we have a full hour with our guests for interviews and audience questions. But today, we're going to do something completely different. The co-founders of the project, Justin Higgins, John Gunnison, and I, Jeff Browning, are going to talk about ourselves, about what we bring to this, what we hope to accomplish, and why we think it's unique. Whether you've listened to all 100 of our episodes or whether you're listening for the first time, hopefully after today, you'll have a better idea of who we are and of the perspectives we bring to these interviews. So when you hear us asking questions, we're not just a random voice, but we're someone who you know. After that, we're going to talk about some of our favorite moments from past episodes, especially for anyone who might be looking at the list and wondering where to start. And then finally, we're going to turn to a conversation about two very important and complex political and policy issues in the news. The recently leaked Supreme Court case on abortion and gun control. This past weekend, there was yet another racially motivated mass shooting in America, this time in Buffalo, New York. But first, I want to ask Justin an honest question. There are literally thousands of political, media, and news podcasts that are out there. Why do you think people should listen to Politics Media 101? Well, if you actually want to understand what is going on inside the halls of Congress, inside the newsrooms that cover the halls of Congress, then you should come to Politics Plus Media 101. If you want to go and get hot takes from celebrities, this probably isn't the podcast for you. So two things make us different than nearly every other form of media out there. First is our experience. Uh, we have experience working for Republicans and Democrats. We have experience writing legislation, influencing the media for politicians, and in some instances, actually creating media on itself. The second thing is because we have this wealth of experience, because we take everything uh, very, very seriously, and we focus on policy and we focus on cause and effect, we're able to book the absolute best guests around from the conservative side of things and the progressive side of things, everyone in between. So we bring a unique perspective and then we explain these issues through hard hitting interviews with guests from all over the political spectrum. Justin, I kind of want to add a couple of things to that too. I mean, you mentioned how we bring guests from across the political spectrum, but I think that we do something even more than that, which is we bring guests actually from all over the world and from different fields and different walks of life. So it's not just Republicans and Democrats. It's also people who are not from the United States. You know, we had a gentleman who was representing the Israeli government on. We're working to bring on the former president of Estonia. And we're also bringing on journalists and experts who come from Lebanon, who come from Iran, who come from all over the world, uh, the, from the DR Congo. So I think that that's fantastic. It's not just about the political spectrum in the U.S., but it's the much broader array of people and perspectives that we're bringing together. The other thing that I want to mention is that we have these live audience questions that we include in every episode. So it's not just a closed conversation between the hosts and the guests in a studio. It's also all the random people who might want to listen. So I'm sure that anyone who's listening to this probably has listened to interviews on Meet the Press or something else and thought, wow, this is the question I wish I could ask if I was there in the room with them. Why isn't someone saying this? But on our show, we allow you to do that. We allow people in the general audience to come on and actually interact with these guests. And anyone who's listening can have a listen to what people with that opportunity ask. So pivoting a little bit then to who's asking the questions, Justin, 
you and I worked on very opposite ends of the political spectrum in Congress. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your background and the perspectives that you bring to the interviews you do? Yeah, it couldn't be more opposite than the folks that you worked for, Jeff. My boss was the MAGA wing of the GOP in Congress before MAGA existed. I started out as a legislative assistant for Tim Hulskamp. So what the heck is that? That is somebody that analyzes and write policy. Who is Tim Hulskamp? He was an extreme right-wing member of the House Republican Party when I worked for him, and his goal in life was to make it difficult for President Obama, for Democrats, but also for establishment Republicans in his party. So he ultimately led the successful overthrow of Speaker John Boehner and pushed the House Republican Party to the right. So that was my first experience, and it really colors how I view the current MAGA politics and the House Freedom Caucus and the direction of the GOP. Then from there, so I went and I worked for the RNC on President Trump's 2016 campaign doing national media stuff for healthcare and veteran affairs and national defense. So my goal there was to influence the media in a way that would turn out right-wing voters. Obviously, that was very difficult. I became disillusioned with President Trump. I became disillusioned with the whole Republican Party response to President Trump. And I ultimately switched parties after the election and became a political appointee for the Democratic governor of Puerto Rico, more moderate guy. But during that experience, I really focused on helping the people of Puerto Rico recover from Hurricane Maria. And in doing so, I was focused on passing pieces of legislation through Congress. I was focused on influencing the media, whether it be creating CNBC shows or getting the governor on Fox and CNN, giving talking points. So that is to say, I bring a combination of policy, media experience, Republican politics, Democrat politics to this podcast, and that's what I try and get to the audience. Um, and John, you also ask a lot of really insightful questions in our interviews, domestic as well as foreign policy. So I was wondering if you could here share some information about your background and the perspective that you bring to the interviews you do on Politics and Media 101. I mean, insightful questions, Jeff. I think you must be thinking of somebody else. But uh, if you're talking about me, um, I guess what I would say is that if it's politics plus media and Justin is the politics, maybe I'm the media because I spent quite a bit of my life working on a big media project. And it wasn't here in the U.S. It was actually over in Abu Dhabi in the UAE, which is where I lived for really my entire adult life until a couple of years ago. I originally went over to Abu Dhabi with my family, but I went back there after undergrad. I worked on a project where we were trying to work with the Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Court to create an Arabic version of the Discovery Channel. And I mean that very literally because it wasn't just us making shows that were similar to the Discovery Channel. It was us actually licensing shows from the Discovery Channel and dubbing them into Arabic and airing them on television across the Arabic speaking world. So while I was working on that, you know, I always wanted to be part of the media, but I've also got this real interest in politics and government and news and, and current events. And the great thing about the Middle East is that it's called the Middle East for a reason. You're right in the middle of Europe, Asia and Africa, and you have this incredible opportunity to explore the world. So every year I tried to go to as many countries as I could in Africa and Europe and Asia you know, there's some years I went to 11, 12 countries and uh, I tried to learn as much as I possibly could about the world outside the United States while I was over there. I, you know, I went and got a degree in diplomacy from the French Sorbonne. I've always been kind of pursuing this nexus of politics and media. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to continue doing as this project evolves. Another thing that usually you don't see in the news is people who are actually practitioners. So folks that actually worked on policy or wrote policy. You mainly see communications directors that get a job on CNN or Fox News, people who are focused on the media. And that's another thing that sets us apart is we actually have skills that were used to write policy. So we understand the legislative process 
Jeff, I was wondering if you could briefly describe your experience in Congress and maybe um, some of your political perspectives that are a little bit different than mine. Sure. So as you said, you worked for a Tea Party member. I worked for uh, members of the progressive left. I actually met my congressman, Jim McGovern, at a protest and asked him for an internship. He said yes. Uh, I worked for Congressman McGovern, for Senator Kennedy, for Congressman Barney Frank during the Dodd-Frank Act around 2007-2008, and then for Congresswoman Eshoo of California and Congresswoman Catherine Clark, who's now the assistant speaker of the House. I started out answering phones. So every time people call Congress, I was one of the people on the other end, then worked up and started helping with mail, and then worked up to a legislative assistant role, which, as you mentioned, is the one who's responsible for taking those ideas and pushing them forward into legislation on the floor and in committee. So I was really lucky to work in Congress for about 11 years to work for just really fascinating members. Even though I worked for members of the progressive left, the joke in my office was that most of my friends were Republicans. And I... uh, I wish people out there had more of an opportunity to see what it actually does look like when Congress works together, because it does happen from time to time and it can be very impactful. So hopefully that's some of what we bring light to here on Politics Media 101 as well. You know, it is kind of funny, Jeff, that you mentioned this thing about how uh, Republicans and Democrats in D.C. and on Capitol Hill often are friends with each other, because I think seeing the personal interaction between people from the different camps It's not something that a lot of people in the general public get the opportunity to do. And that's part of what we're trying to achieve, isn't it? I mean, we have conversations where Justin is speaking to a Democratic member of Congress or you're speaking to a Republican member of Congress. I mean, we are really showing that interpersonal interaction in a way that's a little bit more comfortable than what you get on, you know, a television talk show. Right. And sometimes the members really open up. Because when we have people on, it's very personal. You know, like I think back to the episode we had with George Will, you know, he's this giant of conservative thought. He's a big name that you hear about all over the place. And when he was on talking to us, you know, we could hear the grandfather clock in the background at his house. He was drinking a martini and we got to speak with him for almost a full hour with some really great audience questions. So I hope that, you know, we can bring that personal angle to it as well as, you know, really incisive questions based on our background and on that of our audience. Jeff, you're talking about speaking to George Will and, you know, what a great experience that was. And, you know, it makes me kind of think back on some of the favorite guests that I've had a chance to speak to in the program. And I kind of wanted to ask Justin, Justin, what were some of the ones that really stand out for you as we're looking back on this 250 programs that we posted? Who do you think are some of your favorite guests that we've had? My favorite guest is going to be Congresswoman Nancy Mace because we had her on. She's a Republican member of Congress. And we had her on the day after it became public that Kevin McCarthy lied to the New York Times. And there were audio tapes that came out showing that he had, in fact, lied. And what we got to do was we got to actually have a conversation with her and drill down on why she continues to support him. And sure, she tried to kind of evade it, uh, the first question, but because we have a full hour with these people, we continued to drill down on asking her, why the heck do you still support him? And eventually she gave a really honest answer. She, and I'm paraphrasing here, you're going to have to go back and listen to the episode for yourselves, folks. But she basically said, I support Kevin McCarthy because he supports me in my primary. And just to be able to actually ask a tough question like that and get an honest answer from a member of Congress, it's unique. And that's, that's what I love about it, John. I think that it's interesting that you highlighted the the newsworthy aspect of that conversation, how we got her right as the news that was so relevant to her own position was unfolding, because it reminds me of one of my favorite conversations that we had. And that was one not only where we were reacting to the news in real time, but we were sort of anticipating the news. We were talking to Michael Smirkanish, who is a news media personality. He's got a show on CNN. And we were asking him about CNN Plus and CNN's pivot into digital programming. And we were talking about whether this was going to succeed and what challenges it might have. And I think two days after that conversation, CNN Plus folded. So the conversation that we were having was not only reacting to events like the Nancy Mace one you referenced, but it was really anticipating events. And I think that in a way, that's an even more rare experience and one that I'm never going to forget. Uh, Jeff, what about you? I mean, what are some that stand out to you then? So we've had a couple of really good shows recently on Ukraine. We had Dmitry Alperovich, uh, who was the co-founder of CrowdStrike, who is now starting an institute at Johns Hopkins. 
we had John Spencer on, uh, who's the urban warfare chair at West Point, and he was able to share some really fascinating perspectives. I learned a lot from that one for sure. The third one I'd bring up would be Congressman Jim Clyburn, who's the number three member of the House. You know, having worked there as a staffer and working on committees and other initiatives that he was a part of, being able to actually interview him and ask him questions directly was really cool. I thought he shared a lot of interesting answers with us. Yeah, you know, those Ukraine conversations that we've had have been another one that we've been doing as the news has been unfolding. And, you know, you raised a couple. I think that uh, you mentioned uh, Dmitry Alperovich and John Spencer. But, you know, we also did one with Elliot Higgins, who was the founder of Bellingcat, where they're doing all kinds of open source intelligence that's really helping us understand what's really happening, even with the fog of war, trying to kind of lift that fog as much as they can. And I think that that was one that really has helped anyone who's listened to it get a better idea of what's really unfolding. And that's really another thing that sets us apart is we don't just do these willy-nilly. We just don't host guests and have shows based on the current topic of the week and then move on. We try and give multiple perspectives to the same topic. So for Ukraine, as an example, over the last two months or so, we've had over seven or eight episodes on almost all the aspects that you can get into, whether it be the impact of Russian propaganda, whether it be the legacy of the USSR, and I, and I could keep going on and on and naming all of these different examples. But as we continue to host these shows, John, Jeff, and I, we're learning. We're honing our perspectives, and we're bringing that to the next episode. So this show is just getting better and better with each, and we are really learning along with the audience. I think that the Ukraine shows have included people from almost every different relevant field, right? We've had members of Congress to talk about Ukraine, one Republican and one Democrat, at least Sarah Jacobs and Michael Waltz, right? Former Green Beret Republican. Yeah, yeah, which is also, uh, you know, brings an entirely new piece of relevant experience. We've had these practitioners, like we were saying, Elliot Higgins, someone who's actually working on the war now. We've had these think tank experts who analyze the war from the position of academic expertise, and we've also had people who are media analysts of the war, someone like Julia Davis, for example. So it's almost every different relevant field of work. We've had all of them on. So, yeah, we have brought a real cross-section of expertise. And we also talk to people who have totally different perspectives on what's happening. So I remember the conversation that we had with Stephen Wertheim. And he's someone who is now affiliated with the Carnegie Endowment, uh, previously the Quincy Institute. And he's part of what's called the Restrainer Camp. Very left wing. Well, yeah, I mean, it crosses the different kinds of ideological spectrum, but broadly that restrainer camp, the the group of thinkers on foreign policy in the U.S. who want the U.S. to be more restrained about how they exercise power, right? Some of Stephen's views are very different from mine in the way that he assesses the role of NATO in the war, for example. And, you know, he was suggesting that if the U.S. had tried to put a more straightforward commitment that Ukraine would never be added to NATO, then maybe the war could have been averted, I think was some of the suggestion. And, you know, I very strongly disagree with that for a lot of reasons. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to really hash that out with Stephen. And he made a lot of great points, too. So I think that having that kind of exchange of ideas with people you disagree with is something pretty valuable. And I will also remember uh, that one and look back on that one as one of the better ones that we've done. So we had two that stuck out to me, and I disagreed with both of them. First was uh, Charles C.W. Cook. John, we got into a a spirited debate. It was basically on the health of the GOP, and is there an equivalency between what's going on in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party? And our argument was— No, there's only one insurrection and there's one party that is trying to whitewash that insurrection. And there just isn't the same dynamics. There isn't the same makeup of the, you know, far left members influencing the Democratic Party. He disagreed. And then the other episode was Anna Kasparian, who's a member of the Young Turks. And she was trying to blame the eventual outcome of the 2022 midterms on President Biden not doing enough. And I would argue, I'd love to hear your perspective, Jeff, that President Biden has some of the most impressive accomplishments in modern history for a president in the first year of his term in office. He has the American Relief Act. He has the bipartisan infrastructure bill. He's going to have $54 billion in aid to Ukraine from when the war started to now. And those are some things that that just can't be overlooked. 
So I remember two conversations that we had. There was one with McKay Coppins and there was one with Wajahat Ali. And these are two, you know, excellent writers and journalists in the United States who both come from minority religions. In the case of McKay, he's part of the LDS Mormon community. And in the case of Wajahat, he's uh, an American Muslim. And I think that, you know, these are two often very misunderstood communities, two often very misunderstood religions, and two perspectives and backgrounds that not enough Americans might be personally acquainted with. So I thought that it was really good that we were able to talk to both of them and talk about their experience as Americans and how, you know, their communities fit into that tapestry of, of American life. Uh, Justin, are there any more that come to mind for you that you want to mention? Well, John, I love all of our discussions, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But, Wonderful. But I, I would say, just to piggyback off of what I was saying earlier, how we learn and we improve every time, I think our discussion with Tom Nichols, so he's somebody that you see on Twitter, you see on MSNBC or CNN as an analyst, and maybe you don't understand or fully grasp the depth of his expertise. And I'm not just saying this because he was a previous guest of ours because it's, you know, short clips. But when we got him on the show, John, the depth of his expertise and the depth of his answers were just fantastic. And I think what I enjoyed the most, aside from discussing what would happen in the U.S. if we had a crazy president who controlled the nuclear codes like Richard Nixon or Donald Trump, I really enjoyed the way that Tom was able to go into analyzing Vladimir Putin relative to other Soviet leaders. How we know that Tom is a smart guy, it's not just because he's a longtime academic at the Naval War College or that he's a prominent media commentator, but it's also because he's a Jeopardy champion, Justin. Uh, Tom Nichols (laughs) won five consecutive Jeopardy episodes at the time when that was the maximum limit that you could win. I don't know if you guys remember this, but if you ever watched Jeopardy in the no, 1990s or early 2000s, yeah, they stopped you after you won five and you got a big prize like a car or something. You couldn't go on. And so they changed Ken the Jennings rule. is a fraud. Well, yeah, I mean, they changed the rules so that you could keep winning. And that's how Ken Jennings was able to go on that streak back in 2007 or whatever. But Tom was a, a Jeopardy champion back when you could only win five. So if Tom went on Jeopardy Day, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he would have been Ken <laughs> Jennings if they had different rules. But I mean... Look, he won as much as he possibly could have won, so good for Tom. And that episode with Tom was a particularly impactful one, obviously, because of what's going on in Ukraine and because, you know, in his view, the danger of escalation or miscalculation is creeping up. And he's certainly, you know, he's he's studied the issues for a long time. It was a very sobering and a very timely conversation. But, uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, and I, I think one of the most disappointing episodes that we've had, and it really shows the evolution of the show, was having a discussion with Eric Erickson. And it didn't have anything to do with, you know, his different perspective on things. It had to do with him coming to us and putting on a facade, a show of being this consensus maker, really driving to unite the country. And when in reality, that's just not the case. He is almost as divisive as they come. He's a bit of a troll online. He has a radio show where he's a troll. He's been banned from all these platforms. And I think that that was one of the more uh, disappointing shows that we've had on it. And I blame myself as uh, for booking, but also for, for not asking more difficult questions. And thankfully we do now. But John, do you have any regrets that you'd be willing to share with the audience here as we uh, kind of review some of the past episodes we've had? That's a really good question, Justin. Uh, regrets as we've, you know, what the funny thing is when you listen to an episode that you've been on recording, every time you listen back and you think about what you would have said and done differently. Let me turn it back around to you. When you say that you regret not asking tougher questions to Eric Erickson, why don't you tell us what question you would ask Eric Erickson right now? What would be the question that you would that you would ask him? So uh, he finished the show and, and he mentioned this throughout the show where he was focused on building a sense of community at the local level, bringing people together, not being as divisive. Yeah. So the question that's like I, that Ben Sass book, right? You know, love thy neighbor and that will love, heal the country, right? Yeah love, yeah. love thy neighbor and that will heal the country, which sure, if you're gonna live by that. So I, I would ask him, Eric, do you actually think you're living 
by those values, especially when you're talking about or to somebody with a completely different religious background or view on abortion, transgenderism, or any issue that he believes has to do with his religion. Yeah, I wonder what he would have said. I mean, that's probably something that he does have to think about pretty often because he does put religion front and center in a lot of the work that he does. And he troll, I think the term is he trolls people and he says some pretty nasty stuff to people that don't agree with him. And and John, it doesn't matter necessarily the difference of viewpoint so much as being civil in your disagreements, treating each other like humans, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that religious element there, Justin, because we certainly do need to be honest about the role that religion does play in politics and society, not just the United States, but everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but certainly the United States. For everybody. Yeah, yeah certainly. And that's why, you know, I would say that McKay Coppins and Wajahat Ali are two of uh, my favorite conversations that we've had, because we did talk about how religious minority groups experience life in America, because one of the news events that's really capturing attention is the leaked Dobbs ruling. The opinion by Samuel Alito, that might be the court's majority opinion, that says that Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood will be overturned. And there's a lot of speculation about how that might impact American politics. I know that you've got a very well-considered view on this, and um, I'm interested to hear your assessment there. If I were to boil it down to one issue, John, it's for decades, the pro-life folks had a concrete goal. Their goal was to stack the Supreme Court with their justices so that they can ban abortion. They they identified that goal. They worked towards that goal. And boy, did it energize them. It energized votes. On the left, though, most voters on the left didn't really think that losing abortion rights were ever going to be a reality. But because it wasn't as concrete of a threat or opportunity like you saw on the right, my theory of the case is that the left has a lot more room to gain energy to convert new voters. And then lastly, with abortion on the ballot, I think it directly puts fear of God into gay rights and gay marriage being on the ballot because there is somewhat of a link constitutionally with the way that the conservatives see these two cases where now you're gonna activate the LGBTQ community to come out and vote. Listen, I I was counting in the car talking with my producer. I've done 15 of these, at least the ones I could count. And we keep having the conversation about Democrats will say guns, Republicans will say mental health, and nothing will change. And I'll probably do another one this year, family after family. having nowhere to go with their grief. We'll get into a political conversation later, but is this the way we're supposed to live? Are we destined to just keep doing this city after city? Have we just resigned that this is what we are going to be? I'm gonna give it back to you. So, Justin, we're talking about the importance of prioritization, you know, which issues are on the minds of voters, which issues are the most salient in the public discourse. And it's really frustrating for me because I see yet another mass murder in the United States committed with a firearm. And I'm wondering why this issue, the issue of gun control, gun safety, public safety, is never really given the priority that it deserves in our election. There are huge numbers of Americans on both sides of the issue who prioritize abortion and will vote for a party based almost entirely on their position on abortion, no matter what they might think about all these other topics. But we almost never see that kind of energy around the gun issue. Um, If we had Americans who really prioritize that issue, we could really make a difference and try to make our country safer. And I think that it's really unfortunate how the courts have affected what's possible in that regard as well. If people had properly been prioritizing gun control the way that they have with abortion, maybe we could have tried to assemble a Supreme Court that had a perspective on 
gun rights in the Second Amendment that was a little bit more illogical uh, than the one that we've seen develop. I mean, one of the other pending cases that that the court will rule on in this session is about concealed carry. And it's very possible that the Supreme Court is going to decide that states do not have the power to enforce concealed carry laws. This is directly the opposite about how they're ruling on that abortion issue, right? They're saying that it has to be decided by the states and not by the courts or the federal government. But in this case, with the gun issue, they're not going to allow the states very possibly to enforce any kind of reasonable public safety laws. It's remarkable. It's so twisted and outside well, of the realm of how an organized society should operate. Well, well John, you're you're very against guns, and I and I do just want to pick out one thing you said, and this is the whole crux of my case. I would argue that the the right, the March for Life folks, have been prioritizing abortion, have been prioritizing guns. And that's why we're seeing this movement where you're you're going to get Roe overturned at the Supreme Court, and then you have all these other cases, and they're likely to go against what you want for gun rights. Um, but also, John, why we've seen no movement for federal legislation is because one side of this argument is prioritizing these issues. And I, I just like to say, I can't get into the courts, but I can get into the federal legislation. And this is the really depressing thing. We just had a racist mass murderer kill 10 people in Buffalo, more wounded, disgusting. And this is just one in a long line of not only racist, but just mass murders. We had Dylan Roof. And I will say this. You had in December of 2012 a shooting in Sandy Hook, Connecticut that killed 26 people, 20 of them were kids between the ages of six and seven. And I'd make this argument. If we weren't going to get universal background checks after Sandy Hook, which is supported by 85% of the public, barring a massive political paradigm shift or revolution in this country, we will not see any significant substantive gun laws being passed. So the difficulty for me is, unlike abortion, where you can fight this out and you can remove the filibuster and pass different things— I don't see that being possible with gun laws in the U.S. Uh, Yeah, Justin, I mean, I think what you're saying is sadly perhaps accurate, that it seems that the American public or certainly policymakers and jurists are willing to live in a reality that it's hard to believe that people are willing to accept. After these instances of mass murder and terrorism, that there isn't an effort to try to reshape our public policy in a way that could prevent or limit the damage of future such incidents. I mean, you know, my uncle was killed in a right-wing terror attack in 2001 in New York City. And I remember after that, everybody said, never again. And it's strange that we're not saying that about Sandy Hook, and we're not saying about, about these other instances of mass murder and terrorism. Considering, or let's use the paradigm that Guns are here to stay for a long while, and there isn't really going to be probably too much legislation. And we're not even, John, we're not even getting into the 3D printers where you can print guns that are made of plastic and have plastic bullets and bring them on planes yeah. through. We're not even getting into that. There's a whole, yeah. this This is such a complex conversation. But taking the recent shooting in Buffalo, how much should we blame the online 4chan, 8chan, where this guy is doing his research and self-proclaimed getting radicalized. How much should we blame extremists on cable news like Tucker Carlson, who's promoting the great replacement theories? And how much should we blame maybe laws that allowed this psychotic killer to buy body armor? Because there are reports that there was a security guard on duty who shot this guy, but because he had this high-grade military body armor on, he was able to kill the security guard and keep on committing this atrocity. So how should we look at each one of these things? Well, I think that in these situations, every single element has a, a kind of responsibility, and it's very difficult to separate factors, right? I think that it... You know, nothing is caused by only one thing. Every single event that happens anywhere in the world and your personal life and the animal kingdom happens because of a confluence of factors. And what we can try to do is limit each one of those factors, right? And pay attention to each of them. I think what we can pretty clearly see is a determinant factor, though, is this availability of firearms. Because 
there are right-wing, extreme, intolerant people all over the world, but we don't see the same incidence of mass murder in other countries. It's very often said that Americans aren't more right-wing, intolerant, hateful, or violent than people in France or in Turkey or in Malaysia or in Japan, but we don't see the same incidence of mass murder and terrorism in some of those countries. We do see incidents of terrorism in some of those countries, but not as often as we do in the United States. And what is a separating variable is the availability of firearms. So many people who choose to purchase guns, who are contributing to the proliferation of guns in the country, do so because they sincerely believe that they are protecting themselves. And I think what really needs to be emphasized and explained is that this is not accurate. It's a faulty logic. It's faulty reasoning. By contributing to this proliferation, they are not keeping themselves safe. They're actually making themselves at much greater risk of harm. Having a gun in your house increases the risk that you will yourself be shot by a gun. Um, There are so many gun accidents that happen. There are situations where children and other family members get a hold of the gun that you're keeping in your house. And there's also the very obvious situation where some kind of escalation happens only because of the presence of a gun or the presence of a gun makes that situation in exchange more dangerous. If you're in a, in a dispute in a parking lot with somebody and you're yelling and shouting words at each other and there's a gun involved, someone is much more likely to die than if that exchange is occurring without the presence of a gun. The other thing is that what we should keep in mind, when we're especially talking about suicides and domestic violence and personal disputes that can lead to homicides and accidents, you know, advocates of gun proliferation often say, look, the focus on assault weapons is so misplaced. All that we're, you're pointing out is the shape of the gun, not the use of the gun. Most homicides and suicides are being done with handguns. They're actually right. They're right about that. We are wrong to focus on assault weapons. We should be focusing much more on handguns, and we should be doing a lot more to limit the proliferation of handguns. Handguns are more dangerous and more deadly than assault weapons, statistically. But there doesn't seem to be any conversation about that in the United States. I mean, when people look at examples of the furthest reaching Democrat progressive proposals, they say, oh, Beto O'Rourke said that he wanted to do a mandatory buyback of assault weapons. I mean, I say that's still far too conservative. There's much more that we need to do than that. People should not be allowed to buy handguns in the United States unless you're a professional security officer. Why is there a reason why somebody should own a handgun in the United States? That's where we should start, frankly. It would be much more useful to limit and prevent the sale and proliferation of handguns than it would to prohibit the proliferation and sale of these assault weapons. So I think that the the right-wingers are actually correct when they say that our focus on assault weapons is misplaced. They're right. Handguns are more deadly, and we should put much more public policy focus into that. Well, I I have a very cynical view here, John, and my view is because it is a political non-starter. If, I, well, I, yeah, I, like I was saying, like, we, maybe we need to start with social attitudinal change, and we need to convince more and more people that owning a handgun and bringing a handgun to your house is making you, your family, and your neighbors much less safe. So stop doing it. Throw away your guns, give them away uh, to the police, discard them, stop proliferating to proliferation. I think think your position is an interesting policy one, which is we need to go all the way. Half measures avail us nothing. We either go and and take these guns away and and clean up and and make our country safe like the UK is, for example, or we're just, um, you know, kicking the can down the road. And I would say I don't support the proliferation of guns that we currently see as a society. Um, But I don't support taking away people's guns either, because I think that the social instability that we would have from a policy that ultimately tried to take guns away from Americans would be much more harmful than the proliferation of mass shootings that we're currently seeing. I'd argue that I'd be afraid that our democracy wouldn't survive a policy like that. The Overton window on this topic is so completely out of whack. If we had a law that was prohibiting private ownership of handguns, that that would be considered a full measure. I mean, that's still a half measure. That still allows tons of guns to be sold. I mean, if we had any kind of sensible public policy like they do anywhere, we would start by banning handguns, of course. 
And we're still barely scratching the surface of what might be necessary to prevent continued gun violence. But like you say, it's a political non-starter. The the problem is the idea that that's considered an overreach or extreme or or the furthest full measure. I mean, even that, it just shows where the proportions of this issue are so wrong, remarkably wrong. So then a, a question, if the policy imperative is so clear and the impact on people's lives is as clear as you've just laid out, then Justin, you know, given your background in messaging, why do you think there's stasis on this issue? And what, if anything, do you think is possible? First, I vehemently disagree with the policy position that John is advocating. I do so respectfully. I think that in a perfect world, sure, that would prevent mass shootings. But I think that in the world, the ugly world we live in, John's policy is predicated on changing these social attitudes. And I agree that that's a wonderful pie in the sky place to approach it. And this kind of answers your question, Jeff. If we were to have the most success possible, let's say we get 70% of the country to agree that handguns needed to be banned, the 30% that disagrees not only will vehemently disagree, they're the ones with the guns. So when you try and pass this policy, when you try and go in and do gun buybacks or God forbid, take people's guns from their hands. It is going to be social unrest like I don't think we've seen in a a long while. I fear that militias will spring up, that anti-elite establishment rhetoric that has been prevalent the last decade will all be channeled into this. And these folks who own these guns will be legitimately worried about government overreach. I think that that could spill into some type of outright conflict in the United States. Okay, so the, the thing, look, talking about social attitudinal change is not pie in the sky at all. That's the reasonable place that we go when we determine that we're at a dead end on policy solutions. That's where we shift our focus when we give up on any sort of reasonable public policy remedy. That's not pie in the sky. That's the achievable thing. And that's something that can certainly happen. Generationally, there could be a big difference between the way the young people look at this issue and the generations that are on their way out. It's so, Im- yeah, it's impossible to predict, John. I just, and you're right, but I'm going to try and predict. I just think that at the core of what Americans, our self identity is individualism, is freedom, is in the Constitution, it is the right to gather and peacefully dissent and just push back peacefully. against our government yeah. peacefully, peacefully. Yeah, without but that's the ethos murder and that, violence. Yeah. That's the ethos of the healthy expression of these values. For every healthy expression of a value, you have a more extreme and hardened expression of that value. And I think that a lot of people take what I just mentioned, this individualism and right to push back on your government in the more extreme direction. And I just... Having worked with these people, the Tea Party, the folks that are very conservative and own their guns, I just don't see how we're going to be able to disentangle their view of what it is to be an American with their self-view of being able to be autonomous and have this grave uh, ability and this great firepower away from the policy aspect of things. I think that these people are just not going to change. You're suggesting the cause and effect of this social uprising problem in two different orders then. So on one hand, you're saying that efforts to try to limit the proliferation of weapons that are causing incredible amounts of death and suffering in the country would then lead to attitudes about revolution and insurrection. Correct. However, however, the the cause and effect may in fact be the other way around. I think that's what you just suggested with the last thing you said, which is in fact this effort to glorify insurrection and uprising is a contributing factor to the proliferation and used as a justification for purchasing and stockpiling more and more weapons. And this is something that really needs to be thought through. I think it's because I hear this said a lot as an explanation or justification for the proliferation. People are saying, we need to have guns so that we can respond to potential government overreach. Yep. I hear this. And to me, this is the sickest and most twisted and dangerous of any justification for proliferation that I can think of. People say this, but do not think out what it really means. What does that really mean? It means that people in the United States general public believe that it is legitimate response to public policy that they don't like to do what? Take up guns that they've collected and go out and kill police officers, kill members of the American armed forces. 
kill people in positions of public responsibility, like uh, elected representatives of government, like the person who shot Gabby Giffords, like the person who shot Steve Scalise. This is what people believe is a legitimate form of political expression in the United States. They believe the Constitution gives them the privilege of going out and killing people who work for the U.S. public. This is what they're advocating. This is completely sick and twisted stuff. <laughs> I'm not I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but yes, to answer your question, yes, that is what they think. And they think that, so, um, don't tread on me. That's what so they what, think. So what we're talking about I don't agree with is it. An, an active, basically terrorist, insurrectionist, seditionist cancer that is growing inside the United States. And we're using the fact that this sickness exists as a justification to not act rather than to act as an emergency. That to me is very strange. No, no. I think that whether we like it or not, these people will not give up their guns because of both of the attitudes that we just kind of outlined. And I think the, so that's that from, from my perspective. Well, what we need I, to do is I, work I think, harder to communicate the, and educate the, to the broader American public <laughs> that by contributing to proliferation, they're putting country at great risk. And by so, continuing this vigilantist insurrectionist myth that the constitution entitles them to go out and murder and assassinate people in positions of public trust, that that needs to go away. We need to fight back harder no, against no, those kinds that, of that, That's sicknesses. wonderful. Yeah. But these people, and I don't mean, they don't give a shit. Okay. That, and, and to make it, here's the grand irony of it, Sean. They're talking about protecting their freedoms, protecting the constitution in their mind, right? They would only use this force if the U.S. government turned into the CCP government, where you're literally genociding the Uyghurs or doing something like that in their mind. Yet for the most part, most of these people fall along the authoritarian line of politics. These are the most ardent MAGA supporters. These are the supporters that are whitewashing January 6th in a lot of different instances and still voting for those members of Congress. So most of it doesn't make sense. And I think that in this instance, policymaking wise, the cure to the illness, which is would be in, in your instance, removing guns so that we stop mass shootings, is actually a greater disease than the current problem itself because it will lead to such instability that there's very good potential that our society and government could be gone. Well, here's what needs to be asked then. So those people in the United States who believe that excesses in public policy entitle them to go out and kill people, they need to be asked, where is that line drawn? So what kind of public policy excess entitles them to go out and commit acts of mass murder and terrorism? What is it? Is it a tax increase? Because you do hear a lot of people in these same Communities say that they believe the IRS is illegitimate, you know, the Bundy family, the well, Brown the Bundy family, family in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So where's the line drawn? What public policy measure would entitle them to go out and murder? Many of these people believe that the election was stolen. So does that give them an entitlement to go out and start assassinating and murdering them, police officers some, and members of some, Congress? Because yeah, many dude, of them did try it, to do that. And many of them tried to do that. So, yeah. It, yeah. Um, it, it's arbitrary. I, I think you're, we're trying to look at this logically. And, and my point is that gun ownership in the United States for this specific segment of the population is a religion. It's not logical. There's no real arguments except for don't tread on me. I have a right from the Constitution. It's not only to protect my family, but it's also to protect free society against government encroachment. It doesn't make much sense. And I think that that's part of what's so frustrating. But we're in this situation that I would argue is no win. And I don't think it's going to change in my lifetime. And I'm 33 years old. Well, OK, well, then that brings us back around to how this part of our conversation started which was this a question of policy prioritization and how, depending on what people prioritize, elections might go one way or the other, right? And so, as we've said, you know, we were expecting maybe the 2022 elections, we fought about some economic matters like inflation. But now we're wondering if instead abortion will become the major topic that voters are thinking about as they go and they cast their ballots. And what I was saying was that I view this as really one of the essential challenges for our country going forward that, I mean, as you've characterized and described it in your descriptions, we've got essentially an active insurrectionist community in the United States, people who believe as an almost religious matter that they are entitled to go out and commit acts of terrorism when they dislike public policy 
and they're all armed to the teeth with firearms that are capable of killing dozens and dozens of people. Why isn't that issue being prioritized in our public discourse? And that's the problem. Is like I've said, this issue of gun proliferation has never been given the appropriate level of priority in our political discourse that it really deserves. I need to pull up a poll here, but my understanding is it probably wouldn't even come up on the top 10 list of issues that people prioritize. And I think it's really, this is how most people vote. Like my top issue, my top priority is democracy, is institutions, is keeping our country going. And then from there, it's civil liberties. Um, so it's it's rather abstract in a way. But most people vote, John, on things that affect them directly. So inflation, the economy, national security, abortion is another issue that's that's coming up. Voting rights, even to a much lesser degree. But there are people that prioritize that. And there are just so few people that have been directly impacted by gun violence in the United States that vote, that it's just not enough of a faction of people to actually influence things, especially when on the other side, you have these billion-dollar corporations that are funneling money to grassroots movements to influence constituents that are molding the public image um, and ultimately influence the way that politicians vote. So while we're talking from David Frum and your perspective of changing the public narrative, no matter how much money is put into that, there's going to be a ton of money put into the opposite side to continue that ugly narrative. So so I just wanted to end our gun discussion there. Yeah, sure. I'll just say then, just to wrap it up, then I, I, I'll just respond by saying I think that there's probably more people who are impacted by laws and public safety, and in particular by gun and firearm abuse and proliferation than you might think. I mean, we were talking earlier in this conversation about suicides. There are many, many, many Americans who have experienced suicide and the tragedy of suicide in their family, often at the hands of firearms. And as we know, there is an increase in crime rate in the United States, which is also linked to gun proliferation. And everyone is familiar with stories in the news. Everyone in the United States who are growing up after Columbine have had to do gun drills in their classrooms. So I think that there is more social impact than than you've suggested. There might be. I'm just looking at the stats. I see deaths, 20,000 in 2020. And that's, if I'm reading these right, it increases every single year. From 2014, there were 12,000. 2020, there's 20,000. So the problem is getting worse. It's just abortion. It says that 46,000 people committed suicide in 2020. Yeah, I wonder, with guns? Uh, I'm not sure, but ownership of firearms is contributing to an increase in suicide rate. And there's all kinds of ripple effects and downstream effects of that, whether or not you use a gun frankly, but uh, a huge number of those are committed with guns and uh, almost everyone in the country probably knows someone who's committed suicide. That concludes today's conversation. If you'd like to join us and ask an upcoming guest a question or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Wednesday. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders, thank you for being here. We hope to hear from you soon.